Change can be fairly polarizing, can't it? Some of you love change. You can't wait for the next great thing to come along. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be better. It's going to be badder than anything else that's ever happened before. How many you love change? How many of you? That's you. A few of you. Yeah. Right? And, and of course, there's always going to be naysayers, right? Like, ah, change is bad. But there's probably the same people that said the iPhone was just going to be a fad as well. So, I mean, who's laughing at this point? But there weren't very many of you that raised your hands, right? So the, the rest of you, I assume, like, yeah, we don't really like change, right? Is that you? Yeah, the, the, the picture on the screen, this kind of, this is your love language, I think. <laughs> the best things in life remain unchanged for a very long time, you might say. Well, wh- wh- whether we like it or not, change does seem to be one of the few constants in our world, doesn't it? Things are just always changing, and sometimes it's for the better, and sometimes it's for the worse, and if it gets really bad, then we hope that there's even more change that fixes the things that got broken. But change around us, well, that feels fast and constant. It's often the change in us and change in the people around us feels so slow that we wonder if it's even happening. If we just apply it to your family's life, I'd imagine that most of your families have a particular way that you do conflict. Am I right about that? You wonder, are we ever going to do conflict differently than how we've been doing conflict? You probably have your doubts. I don't know if we can actually change out of this. Or think about your professions, right? Various professions have a a way of sort of hardwiring tendencies into your bloodstream. Like you ever tried to do Christmas with an engineer? They can't enjoy the gifts at all because they have to rewire them to optimize battery efficiency. Or you try to do something with an accountant. It's everything has to flow through Excel. Okay. Okay track our budget that way. We're going to definitely make a plan for vacation that way. We're even trying to do a sketch pad on Excel. A sketch pad on Excel is like, no, it doesn't work, but it's hard to break out of Excel. You get into that. You you ask a pastor, what's his favorite book of the Bible? Somehow you end up with a 15-minute sermon where he's explaining the meaning of Hebrew words to you. Like, man, it's it's hard to get you out of that rhythm. Here's another one. I heard, this is a true story, I heard of a, a coach one time who prepared a hype speech for his wife while she was in labor. (laughs) It didn't go well, but it turns out it actually is hard to teach an old dog new tricks, right? And we kind of get locked into certain patterns. And this morning's sermon is titled, Hope for Real Change. Hope for Real Change. And despite our skepticism about change, Genesis 44 tells us that real change is actually possible. It's important you know this morning God intends to change you. He intends to change you. And sometimes we get locked into thinking, I'm this way, my family's this way, things are going to be this way. God intends to change you. Romans 8, he says he's conforming us into the image of his son Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 says we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the Lord. We simply look upon his glory. But despite knowing that God intends to change you, we still sometimes ask, is it really possible? Is it really happening? Are we just kind of spinning our wheels here, kicking up some dirt, and developing ruts that are a little bit deeper? If we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, it does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? The progress seems so slow, and the road has been long, and I'm not getting where I want to go. So I want you to know this morning, if you're here, and you're wondering if you can actually change, 
Boy, you picked a great Sunday to be here. I am so glad you're here. And it, if you know that you need to change, but maybe you're scared to admit in your heart of hearts just how much you need to change, because it kind of feels overwhelming to think about it, so it's just easier to kind of press it off to the side, well, I want you to know I'm really glad you're here today too. Genesis 44 speaks wonderful truth to us saying, I want to know how to change. I'm not changing as much as I want to. What do I need to do about that? Great day to be here. Well, let me quickly review the story, because you, you might be just here for the first week, and you're just kind of picking up in the middle of this long story. It's been 20 years since Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave and then lied about it. And over the last 20 years, God has had them on a transformation path. And they didn't necessarily know what was going on, but God was at work even when they didn't see it. Their brother Joseph, unbeknownst to them, is now the prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And he, Joseph, is in the process of giving them a series of tests to figure out if they've changed or not. They still don't even know who he is, but he's recognized them. And here in chapter 44, he has one final test up his sleeve before he reveals his true identity to them. One more way to see, have you really changed? Last week, chapter 43, they ate a feast with him, and then he sent them out, sent them back to their dad. Go home. Let's see what happens. Chapter 44 picks up the story. They've been sent out of the palace. Joseph has his servants pack up the youngest brother, Benjamin's sack, and put this really valuable silver cup in it. They get, you know, a mile or two down the road, and then he sends the courier after them and accuses them of stealing this really valuable sil silver cup. And they swear up and down they're innocent. They are so sure of their innocence that they actually pledge, hey, let's put the death penalty on anybody who stole this cup. That's an incredibly high degree of confidence in your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own innocence. It serves as kind of a warning for us that we should be maybe a little cautious in asserting how good we are and how right we are. It's easy to be really filled with, here's how I'm justified in these things, and these brothers kind of serve as a warning to us, hey, slow down here. So they start digging through the bags, and the cup shows up in this youngest brother's bag, and they are absolutely distraught. You see, the father sent them out with specific instructions, protect this younger son. And based on the punishment they levied, that they said, hey, this death penalty, now he's in line to die. Now notice for just a moment here the brilliance of Joseph's test. Things are coming full circle, and you see that the story sort of starting to converge. It's been 20 years since he was sold for silver. And now he sends a test in the form of silver to see, will these guys sell out their younger brother, the favored brother, again, when they've got a chance to save their necks and dad's not around and nobody will know about it? Or will they actually respond in a self-sacrificing way for their brother? I'll put the pressure on when nobody's around, they're out in the middle of the wilderness, and if they want to get off scot-free like they tried to last time, they'll have the opportunity to do it. It's kind of a, a striking turn of events, if you will. And the core of the story is actually in chapter 44, verse 15. There, there's a question that Joseph asks. He says, what is this deed that you have done? What is this deed that you have done? It's sort of an open-ended question that gets at the, the heart of where someone's at. It reveals their heart. It says, have they really changed? 
You say, what have you done? The way somebody answers that tells you a lot about where they're at, doesn't it? How much they own it, how much they shift the blame, how much they make excuses, level of detail they go into, all of that. What's interesting is that this phrase, what is this deed that you have done? It's actually a Hebrew phrase that shows up eight times throughout the book of Genesis. It's continually being asked, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done? What have you done? Pastor Kevin DeYoung first helped me to see this. I want to give credit where it's due, to see this recurring theme so that as all the plot lines of Genesis are unfolding, they're now reaching a culmination in the life of Joseph here. And the first seven times the question is asked, what is this deed that you have done? Every single time, it's a bad response. Every single one, all throughout the Israelite family. Maybe you've heard the adage, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. You've heard that before? That's kind of what's happening in this story. He's got a, a family who has followed Jesus, but when confronted with their own sin, they've got really bad habits of dealing with it. They don't do well in this area. And so in chapter 44, we see a different response. There's finally a good response when asked, what is this deed that you've done? And what Judah does is he shows he's a changed man, and he's going to establish a new family legacy. So what are we going to do from an outline standpoint this morning? I actually want to review these first seven times in the book of Genesis. What is this deed that you've done? What is this deed you've done? What have you done? Track through all of those quickly, and then dive into this last one here and see what are the foundational elements of change. Because for their family, it looked like things were never going to change. We're just going to answer this question poorly. What's this deed you've done? And save our own necks. And somehow it changes. And apply that to our lives. How do we actually change? The question at the core of it is this. Will I own my sin or will I not? That's what we'll see over and over. So, so we just go back to the beginning of Genesis. The first time this question shows up is in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to put these on the screen. If you want to turn back and kind of flip, quickly flip through, uh, you're welcome to do that. If you don't want to, that's okay as well. Genesis 3.13, the first response to this question we see is blame shifting. They shift the blame. Genesis 3.13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She shifts the blame. This is often at the core of our response to our wrongdoing. It was the first recorded human response to sin, and it maintains its status as a foundational response to sin. Shift the blame to somebody else. We say, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know the pressure that I was under. You don't know the nasty people that I'm around. And somehow we trick ourselves into thinking that two wrongs make a right, and they don't. We have to remember, I'm not responsible for the wrong that someone else has done, but I am responsible for how I respond to it. They're wrong, doesn't justify my wrongness, and i got to be careful not to shift the blame onto them. Here's the second response we see in the book of Genesis. It's the next chapter over, chapter 4. This is where Cain killed his brother Abel. Chapter 4, verse 10, if you're there, here's what we pick up. And the Lord said, here's the phrase, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 13, and here's Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He complains about it. I mean, once we shift the blame, then we start complaining. He says, we could talk about what I did wrong, but God, aren't you being kind of heavy-handed here? Maybe that's what we should talk about this time. I want to complain about that. 
wants to avoid the talk of his own wrongdoing so he can focus on somebody else's wrongdoing. There's real times to talk about how others have wronged us, but we got to understand there's an impulse in us that's quick to acknowledge the sins of others and slow to acknowledge the sins of ourselves. Here's the third response in the book of Genesis. Sometimes we just leave a situation. We just leave. I don't don't want to deal with this, so I'm just going to leave. That's what happens in Genesis 12. It's where Abraham lies about his wife to Pharaoh. Pick it up in 12.18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Same question there. What's this deed that you have done, Abraham? Why did you not tell me this woman was your wife? Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And Abram just gets up and leaves. It's like he says, well, that was kind of awkward. I guess we're going to go somewhere else now. Kind of picks up, I don't want to deal with it. Yes, Pharaoh told him to leave, but there's no apology. There's no aspect of Abraham recognizing what he did. No sense of owning what he did. But I wonder as you reflect on yourself, is this how you respond when somebody else discovers the junk in your life? You simply move on to a new relationship, move on to a new church or a new small group. You ignore it, act like it wasn't really the issue. I just want to just to move on because it's, it's easier to leave. It's easier to ignore what's going on. It's easier to try to kind of sweep it under the proverbial rug. Friends, what's easy often isn't what's best. And when the mask comes off and people really know the whole you, that's when you find out if you actually believe the gospel or not. What do I mean by that? I start to think about this. Do I really believe that my sins are forgiven and my righteousness is in Christ, or do I have to strive to look good before someone else? When they actually know who I am, is my identity in me and looking good or in Christ and what he's done for me? Fourth response We don't just shift the blame. We don't just complain. We don't just leave and pretend like nothing happened. We often rationalize. Genesis chapter 20. We have a second incident where Abraham lies about his wife. Pick up in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? Same phrase. What is this deed you have done? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You've done things to me that ought not be done. Here's Abraham's response, his rationalization. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. It's as if Abraham says, man, haven't you seen the culture around here? Yeah, my choice wasn't good, but have you seen how these people operate? I had no choice. He rationalizes. And the funny thing is we like to think of ourselves as pretty rational creatures, I think through things, I process, I make the right decision, I look up all the information on Google. But we're far more often rationalizing creatures than we are rational creatures. We find the thing we want, and then we seek a way to explain it, regardless of what God actually intends for our lives. We say, here's why this was my only option. It wasn't really cheating, the test was unfair. I wasn't really stealing. It was just sort of long-term borrowing. That thing in 1 Peter about honoring the emperor, that doesn't apply if he's senile. 
That bit about speech seasoned with salt. You don't know how the culture warriors are. I don't have a choice. Have you seen the world around us? You see, at the the core of rationalizing, we would never verbalize it this way, but we basically say, if God really knew my circumstances, he probably would have written the Bible differently. Because it sounds ridiculous to say out loud, but that's what's underneath it. Like, if God really knew what was going on here, well, then he would have given me a little out clause where there isn't one in that verse. And we got to understand, like, boy, this is a common human response to sin, and it's alive and well in all of our hearts. Fifth response, sometimes we just do nothing. We just do nothing. Genesis 26 says, Isaac, talking to Abimelech, here's what happens. Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? Here's that question. What have you done? What have you done? What have you done? He also lied about his wife. Remember that Jesus might live in your heart, grandpa lives in your bones thing. That's Abraham, same sins that Isaac committed. The king Abimelech says this, one of, one of our people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Here's Isaac's response. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He just kind of does nothing. He's like, well, we're just going to keep moving forward here. He just presses on. Like, maybe he's embarrassed to find out what he did. Maybe he's not sure how to apologize. Like, that's not how his family did it. Like, his family doesn't really apologize for stuff. We just kind of pick up the trash and take it out and go on the next day. I don't know what happened in in Isaac's life. But he does nothing about it. He just plants a seed, reaps, and moves on with things. Right? Maybe you've never had someone show you how to apologize. Like, yeah, that, I understand why that happens. That's not how we do things. Like, I get what you're saying, Justin, but our family doesn't apologize for stuff, and so I'm not exactly sure, like, what this is supposed to look like. But can I just tell you, if that's you, it's going to be awkward. There's no way around that. Or so just be totally realistic about this. Like, apologizing is never smooth, never easy, but somebody has to take the first step. You can't just move forward and act like nothing ever happened. You can't just kind of pull it off into a back room and say, well, we can store it back there. Because I think some of us operate a little bit like that show on A&E Hoarders with the sin in our life. Well, I can just put it in the back closet and it'll be all right there. Now, we're not casting any judgment here. If you had a graduation open house and you had to tuck some stuff in the back room, no judgment zone, totally get it. It's Sometimes as a short-term strategy, it works all right. But you turn on that show and you think, goodness gracious, how in the world do you think this isn't that big of a problem? Like, this is disgusting, and it's destroying you. Like, there's, there's stuff growing in there. There's, like, not only animals living there, like, you got whole herds living back in there. What is going on? Because when you make a habit of doing nothing with the sin in your life, it grows, it festers, and it destroys you. Here's a sixth response we see. We make excuses. Genesis 29. This is where Jacob has married uh, Leah. He thought he was getting Rachel. Picking up in verse 25. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Same question. What have you done? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, 
it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What have you done? I make excuses. Oh, well, this isn't how our culture does it. Well, that's okay for you to say your culture does it, but does that mean it's okay for you to lie to me? That's what Jacob is basically saying. He blames it on the culture around him. What do we say? Well, I'm not a gossip. I just have a lot of prayer requests. I'm not a glutton. I just really enjoy dessert. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I just like craft beer. Right? There's all kinds of ways where we just say, oh, this is just kind of how it goes around here. This is our culture. I make excuses for myself. Our culture, we do it this way or that way. Our church does it this way or that way. Our tradition does it this way or that way with a seeming lack of regard for, what does God say? Don't make excuses when confronted with your sin. What is this deed that you've done? Here's the seventh and final response, at least the bad responses. We make counter accusations. This is what happens in chapter 31. Laban and Jacob, let me read to you. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take my daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob says to Laban, Laban, you're, you're aggressive, you're an angry man, you're a forceful man, you're a violent man. I know I did the wrong thing, but actually you're the problem, Laban. Let me tell you how wicked you are. Makes a counter accusation to deflect off of himself. And the thing with all of these wrong responses, they're all basically driven by fear of man instead of fear of God. All of them are. I got to look good in front of people. I'm afraid of what they're going to say. I'm afraid of what they're doing. I'm gonna, afraid of what they're going to think. And when people become big in our minds, then God becomes small in our minds, and we do really foolish things. And over the last 18 months in Genesis, we've seen this recurring theme over and over that we often fear man more than God. And it's easy to look back on the foolishness that these people have done thousands of years ago. It would be wise to look at ourselves and to recognize Proverbs 9, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is actually a fountain of life. Chapter 14, verse 27. Anyway, it wasn't that long ago I heard uh, Paul David Tripp. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a, a counselor. Uh, and he was reflecting kind of on major failures in ministry. Where guys that you thought were this, you know, big ministry, he's a preacher doing this or that, writing books, you name it. How do these guys fall? He's been in counseling situations with them. And the, the basic theme that what he said is, People forget the power of indwelling sin in their life. They think that when that question is asked, what is this you've done? They don't actually have to look inward. They can look outward and see the problem somewhere else. We don't focus on the constant spiritual warfare in our heart. We don't recognize how easily entrapped our heart is. We don't see that our greatest battle is in our own heart as opposed to the world around us. And we start to think that the biggest problems are in the world around us instead of in our own heart, then we repeat these mistakes of Genesis in how we answer the question, what have you done? We start to blame shift. We start to complain. It's their fault, not mine. We start to leave. Well, I just got to get to a better circumstances, better situation. 
We rationalize. We do nothing. We make excuses. We make counter accusations. All of it looking outward, saying the problems are out there, not in me. The whole story culminates in Genesis 44, saying, what is this deed you've done? And you finally get a good response. Someone who finally answers in a godly way, in a humble way. And what's said there? Well, let's start with the response. The response is this. Judah owns his sin. That's what we must do. We must own our sin. What's the hope for real change? It's not in blaming someone else. It's in owning our sin. If you're open to chapter 44, look back at verses 15 and 16 with me. Here's what we see. Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Eighth and final time in the book of Genesis. What have you done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose cup, or in whose hand the cup has been found. What's Judah do? He clearly owns his sin. Three times. What shall we say? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? I know we're guilty, is what Judah says. He's not just owning some kind of a generic mistake. Oh, I stumbled a little bit there. Oh, I slipped up. Oh, I could have done that better. No, he owns that he sinned against God. He says, God has uncovered our guilt. God has exposed our guilt. God has brought our guilt to light. Our culture doesn't want to talk about sin, and there's a lot in the church we don't want to. We want to talk about our own weaknesses or mistakes, our fumbles. God says, no, you've sinned against me. And some might look at the story and say, well, what exactly is the sin they committed? Remember that they didn't steal the cup. The cup was placed in their bag. So what what exactly is going on here? The the idea of the Hebrew and the language underneath is taking a very long view. They've been on this long journey towards transformation. And Judah's in essence saying, the guilt of our lives, the sin has been exposed, how we hated our brother. Judah is speaking. It was my idea to sell him into slavery. It was my idea to lie to my father. Judah, you'll recall in chapter 38, is the guy who slept with a prostitute who ended up being his daughter-in-law, and when he found out that she was pregnant, tried to take the moral high ground and demand that she be put to death. See, Judah's got a long history of sin and guilt that hasn't been dealt with, that he's saying, the Lord has brought this to mind. It's not necessarily the sin of 44, it's the, the broader view there. And Judah's speech here in chapter 44, it's the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis, Interesting little fun fact there, next time you get that on Bible trivia. But there's a lot to learn from this speech. It's a masterful speech, but it's a speech that can only be delivered by someone who's been deeply changed. So we started out this morning saying, how exactly do we see this change take place? And I think there's a couple of clues in Judah's speech that say, here's how we can finally respond rightly to our sin. Here's how we can finally change Two foundational statements for how we can experience true change. Here's the first statement that you have to make. Without this statement, you will never change. You have to be able to say, I was wrong. I want you to look at the screen right there. What immediately follows the word wrong? It's a period. 
Because we want to make that statement with a comma or a semicolon or some other grammatical marker there that lets us keep going and explain what else is there. I was wrong, period. If it's a comma or a semicolon, all we're doing is flipping back to those first seven bad responses throughout the book of Genesis. None of those lead to true change. So we own our sin, and we're specific about our sin. Don't beat around the bush. We don't need any mansplaining when it comes to acknowledging and owning your sin. What is it that you did? When it comes to talking to God, it's so easy for us to want to say, God, you know that thing that I did. God, you kind of know that, well, you know what happened yesterday, but that's not my heart. Friend, your heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. You don't actually know how dark it is. I don't know how dark my own is. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us about that. It's, it's easy for us to say, well, I, I know that I said that, but I didn't really mean it. That's not where I'm really at. And we seem to conveniently ignore the passages that say, out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Freudian slip is kind of a, uh, an interesting way of looking at it. Maybe there was something deeper in your heart there. You start to talk about confession of sin, acknowledging our wrong, and I know how it works. It's so easy to think of somebody else in your life that really needs to acknowledge their sin to you. Or somebody else who tried to apologize but said, I was wrong, comma, instead of saying, I was wrong, period. Resist that urge. Don't listen for somebody else. The Holy Spirit's really good at his job. He doesn't need you to do it for him. Hold up a mirror and look inward. Friends, you've got to understand this. Without the confession of sin, there's no forgiveness from sin, and there's no deliverance from sin. Without the confession of sin, there's no forgiveness of sin or deliverance from sin. David would talk about this in Psalm 32. I think we have it up on the screen. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. A couple of verses later, this prayer of confession, he says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Without confession, there's no forgiveness or deliverance. And this is always, always a confession that is first to God. Because God is whom we've sinned against first. Yes, we sin against others, but it's first against God. The confession is first to him. But it's also wise to confess to a brother or a sister who's close to us. James 5 says there's healing there. I heard someone describe it this way. They said, if we only confess to God, yes, we will be forgiven, but our experience of our forgiveness, it's like it's in black and white. And by confessing to a brother or a sister, we experience forgiveness in 4K. Because I can say, I'm able to talk about this. I don't have to hide behind a mask of my own goodness. I can actively cling to Jesus. And by telling you, here's where I sinned this week. It frees me and allows me to live in the light. Pastor Dane Ortland, in the, the book that I recommended this morning in the, at the outset, here's how he described this. He says this, you are restricting your spiritual growth if you do not move through life doing the painful 
humiliating, liberating work of cheerfully bringing your failures out from the darkness of secrecy into the light of acknowledgement before a Christian brother or sister. In the darkness, your sins fester and grow in strength. In the light, they wither and die. Walking in the light, other words, is honesty with God and others. If you were to say this a little bit differently, you would say this. A wrong diagnosis always leads to a wrong treatment. Wrong diagnosis always leads to a wrong treatment. So if you get diagnosed with having seasonal allergies, but you're actually a type 1 diabetic, you're going to have a major problem. Wrong diagnosis is going to lead to the wrong treatment. You might think, well, I've only got seasonal allergies, so the Claritin is good to take, but if I miss a day, no big deal. I'll probably make it all right. It's not that way with your insulin. You can't miss with that. It's the same with confession. If our sin is nothing more than seasonal allergies, little weaknesses we have, then maybe you can confess here or there, maybe this week, maybe next week, maybe once a month. Maybe when life really goes off the rails, you remember a time of confession you had three years ago. But if sin is as deep in your heart and as deadly as a disease like diabetes, then you can't miss your insulin. You must confess daily to God. So if you think about your rhythms of confession to God and to others, friends, if you're thinking, hey, this happens once every couple weeks, where I sit down and say, Lord, forgive me for this specific sin, period. If that's not a regular habit, Friend, I'm just going to tell you, your spiritual blood sugar is at a deadly level. Don't mess around with this. You remember how confident the brothers were in their own righteousness? Hey, if anybody finds this cup in their bag, let them be put to death. Don't be them. Confess your sins to the Lord and find a trusted brother or sister with whom you can say, I was wrong, and I own it specifically, not in vague ways. Here's the second statement that is critical for true change. I need grace. Yes, you say, I was wrong, but you also recognize, I need grace. As with any sickness, the sin sickness, it's not merely enough to say that you're sick, to talk about the symptoms. You have to get the right treatment. Right? You can know you have type 1 diabetes, but if you're not taking the right treatment, it doesn't really matter how honest you are about the disease you have. You have to get the right treatment. And as is also the case with sickness, if you won't get treatment from outside yourself, you're not going to get better. That's why you go to a doctor. But when it relates to our own sin, we're so frequently thinking, well, I can fix this myself. I can clean up my act. I can do this thing or that thing. No, friend, you need grace. We all need grace. Maybe you didn't see Judah use the phrase, I need grace, in chapter 44. Said, I didn't remember that when Phil read it. You're right, that phrase isn't exactly there. But there's two clues in chapter 44 that tell us Judah is saying, by his words and by his action, I need grace. Here's the first one. The word servant in chapter 44 shows up 10 times. 10 times. Because I'm your servant, we are your servants. Treat your servants with kindness and gentleness and grace. In essence, Judah is saying, I'm coming to this from a perspective of humility, recognizing I need mercy. I'm the servant here. I need help from outside myself. 
It means we're not coming to God, making demands on him, telling him what he needs to do, but we're asking him for mercy. It means our biggest requests aren't asking for changed circumstances, but a changed heart. And when you change how your prayer life works, that it's fundamentally and most significantly asking for a changed heart as opposed to changed circumstances, you'll recognize a profound change in your life. Here's the second clue. The word father shows up 14 times in Judah's speech. He's constantly making appeal for his father. My father this, my father that. What he's doing to Joseph, he's making an appeal to Joseph's charity. He says, in essence, Joseph, I know that you could treat us harshly and you would be right to do that. That's what we deserve. We have this silver cup. But please think of my dad. He can't see, he can't hear. This is going to kill him if he finds out. Please treat us graciously on the behalf of someone else. Basically, what he's saying, please give us grace because we don't deserve it. But think of my dad. And to truly receive grace, I think, is one of the hardest things in all the world to do. Maybe it's a simple, basic example that helps, helps you think about this. You go over to somebody's house. Think of it this way. Someone has wronged you badly. And what do they do? They invite you over for dinner. And you say, well, can I bring something? No, we got it all covered. You get over. Well, can I, can I help to set the table? No, we got it. It's already set up. Oh, can we help to put things away? No, we got it all covered. Can I do anything? No, just come and enjoy and receive it. That's really hard when you have that experience. Isn't it? Like, I want to contribute something. I want to be part of moving this forward. It's really hard to receive grace. It's one thing to avoid the punishment for what we deserve, but to actually receive grace is remarkably difficult. And just as these brothers ask for grace on account of someone else, isn't that what Christians do? Father, I need grace not on account of my life and my goodness, but on account of Jesus' life and his goodness. And I know I shouldn't be treated with kindness. I know you should be angry at me. I know my sins deserve death. But please be gracious to me on account of Jesus. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, notice this. This is what it means to be a Christian, that you ask for grace, not because you're a good person, but because you know you're not a good person. I need Jesus to be treated as his perfect life, not as my totally messed up one. That's what God does. If you'll ask for his grace, he'll treat you with the righteousness of Christ instead of your own sinfulness. Let me close with a, a final analogy here. Think about it this way. Imagine you go to summer camp, right? It's that season, camp is coming up, we go. You're doing all kinds of stuff. You're getting muddy. You're rolling around. You do one of those Spartan Run type things. By about 5 p.m., you've just got mud caked over your entire body, and you think it's glorious. The sun's been baking it on. It's no longer mud. It's just dirt, and there's big clumps of it. You're thinking about how you're going to try and get clean. So you start to run, you start to rub a little bit, and the biggest chunks fall off, and still kind of itches, so you grab a rock from the path, and you start to kind of scrape on your arm a little bit, and it gets cleaned off there, but it starts to hurt, and you realize that's not going to be a great solution for your whole body, and somebody, one of the other kids thinks that he can just get an obscene amount of hand sanitizer, right? So he just pumps it, it's like rubbing, like kind of helps on your hands, like puts it on his kneecap, not going to work for the whole body. 
Somebody else goes to the camp shower. Of course, camp showers have terrible water pressure, so it's like drip, 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 and it, it gets a little bit off. But you're not getting clean, right? All these different strategies. Here's how I can get clean from this. What's the smartest guy in the group do? He goes over to the camp lake. Goes up to the diving board, goes on the blob, whatever they got there, and he jumps in to a deep, cold, refreshing lake. You get plunged into that and it finally washes you clean. It gets all your hair clean, gets all the crevices clean we don't want to talk about, wipes everything out, and all of a sudden, what did you do to get clean? You found a source outside of yourself that can actually clean you. You get plunged underneath that water, and when you come up through no doing of your own, all of a sudden, you've been changed. You're clean. The dirt is off of you. That's how it is with Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again, says the song? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, that's how we change. We confess our sins to the Lord. Ask for his grace. We're plunged beneath the water, and as we behold the glory of Jesus, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray.